Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Advent this year, as well as for our New Year lesson, we're talking about how we can become the kind of people we need to be in order to navigate the kind of change and the rate of change that history has put upon us. You're going to hear today so much change coming from so many directions, change we cannot stop, change we cannot predict, change we can't even adapt to fast enough. So what kind of people do we need to be in this environment? We didn't choose this, but it's here to live well and to thrive and to flourish in an environment with this much change. It's the moment in history that we're living through. We might want to figure out how to do it well. So here are the questions that we'll talk about afterwards. It'll give you some time to be thinking. We'll be looking for, in the discussion time, real-life examples uh, of the stuff you're going to hear in the lesson. You're going to hear in the lesson that we tend to limit our options We tend to limit possibilities when we approach life driving for predetermined outcomes. We will see how that posture can stop new realities from emerging, how that posture can inhibit new possibilities unfolding. So there are as yet unseen options available to us. We want to be seeing them. But there's a reason that our go-to response is pushing, 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 because that's part of human nature. And there's a reason why it's part of human nature. So today we're going to be thinking about when is it helpful and when is it not helpful. Because being able to distinguish the two is going to be an important part of figuring out how to take on this posture that we'll be talking about today. All right, so be thinking for real-life examples as we go through the lesson. I said in the Thursday email that our world is always changing, but in our lifetimes, the rate of change has been historically extraordinary. And then, in the last few years, a pandemic comes along and speeds up even that already accelerated rate of change. Look at how quickly we are changing how we buy and sell things. Uh, And that's just the beginning of that economic shift that's going on right now. We're seeing businesses close at a whirlwind rate who have been doing business one way and other businesses scrambling to expand and to open to do business a new way. And old employment patterns are being upended as we try to figure out what new employment patterns are going to be in this new way of buying and selling. And who knows where this is all going to end up. We can't see that from here. We're changing the place in society of our essential workers. That role was highlighted during the pandemic, and we see that we need these workers. We've also seen that they are spent, and we've also seen that they're exhausted, delivering uh, essential services often at an unsustainable pace. We've also seen that they can't keep doing what we need them to be doing without enough salary to buy food and housing and transportation and medical care, which is, as we've seen, an unsustainable system. 
And when anything is unsustainable, what that means is change is out ahead of us. Change is coming. We don't know what the change is going to look like. We don't know how painful it's going to be when it comes, but we know change is coming, and we don't know where this is going to end up. We've seen working from home now. We've seen working with flexible schedules. We've seen some of the benefits, time with family, time to take care of household realities. We've also seen the detriments, uh, increasing isolation and work creeping into our lives in a way that makes boundaries at home difficult to have. And again, who knows where the American workplace is going to end up. Who knows what's going to happen to American workers who live in that workplace when we finally get to whatever the future holds. Long before the pandemic, we were changing who we allow into our lives and who we don't. Politics has expanded and expanded and expanded into all the areas of life so that now even our food has become a political identifier. If you order a burger or if you order chicken tikka masala, that depends on how your zip code voted in the last election. What we eat has become a political identifier. And as more and more of daily life has been identified by politics, we've increasingly narrowed who we let in and who we keep out. And the pandep pandemic just accelerated an already uh, existing trend. Now, even our medical decisions are political decisions. We let in those who mask and vax, or we don't. We keep out those who mask and vax, or we don't. And it's an unsustainable state for a nation that works to be a cohesive, re unified reality. And as we've seen, in time, unsustainable breaks. And in time, unsustainable means there is change out there ahead of us. Now, pray God, it's not the kind of change that many of the extremists are advocating, autocracy or civil war or chaos, but change is coming, and who knows where this change is going to end up. We're changing how we learn. Online education, remote learning for all of its benefits and all of its drawbacks, it's here. And it's changing how we approach education. Our schools are positioned for significant change. For every decade in our nation, from 1900 until 1960, our nation increased funding for public education as a percentage of GDP. And then, for every decade from the 1960s until now, we did just the opposite. We decreased funding for public education as a percentage of GDP. And the pandemic highlighted now that teachers are essential workers. And now, we are losing teachers in droves. There has been a rapid increase in unscheduled teacher workdays because principals are simply unable to staff their schools. And so an article I read recently highlighted how working families are finding it increasingly difficult to depend upon schools for when they go to work. Again, not a sustainable pattern. And we don't know how this is going to end up, but what it does say is that there is seismic change out ahead of us. In the last few years, we've all seen how our current way of doing society, our current way of governing and educating and buying and selling and policing, how these systems have perpetuated inequity, race inequity, gender inequity, social class inequity. We have a story that we tell ourselves as Americans that in the, our nation, we are the land of opportunity, that a child born poor can break out of poverty here. But our rate of social mobility is in the bottom third of developed nations. 
So either we're going to have to change the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, our identity, what we believe about ourselves, or we're going to have to change those forces that work against social mobility in our nation. Either way, change is out ahead of us. We've become keenly aware of the systems that drive gender inequity and racial inequity, how different it is being black or brown or a woman or poor. Again, unsustainable. As the gap has grown so large, it is insisting that we bring about change. And we don't know how a shift to a more equitable society is going to look. We don't know how that process is going to unfold. It seems unlikely today that we're going to work together to bring about these changes. It seems more likely that we're going to have to fight it out. But there have been turnarounds in times of divisions before, and that could happen again. We just don't know. The point is, we don't know where we are going. We don't know what the future holds. We do know it's not going to be the same as it is now in area after area after area. Now these are big social trends, but these big social trends impact your life, your house, your neighborhood, your kids, your school. Now <coughs> I've talked to you about this before and I've been having conversations with folks in our community and I know that for you, some of us, this pandemic has helped us reprioritize, change the relationships that matter most to us. We've been able to find more time and more space for one another. But I know, having spoken with you, that there are others for whom this has created a harmful and unhealthy way of being isolated, where we've been stuck and unable to connect. We've all had our routines upended, and for some, that has allowed us to rediscover some important things, to rediscover relaxation, to rediscover a better balance of life, to reprioritize what matters, what it means to be human. But for others, those upended routines have created pressure and have created anxiety and a deep sense of loss. For some, we've changed how we eat for the better, eating out less, making healthier choices, for others, the isolation and the loneliness has caused us to gain weight, to become more sedentary. This tidal wave of history is converging on you and on me. And it's going to impact our kids and our grandkids. The very moment that you are spending your time on this earth is a time of momentous change. And it's such drastic change, and it's coming from so many different directions that we cannot prepare for what is coming, because nobody knows, because we cannot predict where we're going. We don't know. Now, I didn't mention technology. I didn't men mention the disruptive power of AI or the disruptive power of climate migration or the things that sit th out there waiting before us. So. If we can't see where we're going, then we can't prepare for what we'll do when we get there. And if we can't do that kind of preparation because of the complexity and the enormity of the change before us, then what can we do? Well, it turns out that the spiritual tradition has a lot to say about that. And it turns out that one of the things that we can do is start to prepare for the kind of people we will be when we get to wherever it is that we end up. We can begin to prepare and begin to work on the kind of people who will be able to navigate unforeseeable 
change. Now, you've heard me say that I love this spiritual community. I think about our health and well-being all the time, but we are not immune to the enormous forces of change that are going on in history. We are not immune to the unforeseeable future that is set out there before us. In the 1970s, active participation in a religious community meant five engagements in a month. Maybe that was four church services in one group or some variation, five engagements in a month. And then our economy changed about 1970 uh, and the price of a square foot of a house and the price of uh, health insurance, the price of education, the price of a second vehicle and the price of childcare. Those costs begin to escalate way out of proportion to the cost of living. And over the 40 years of that out-of-proportion rise, by the time we got to the 2000s, those four, five factors together had come to be the equivalent of a second average salary. So we stopped choosing to be a two-income household, and now we had to be a two-income household. If you wanted to stay in the middle, you had to be two, in, two average incomes. So. Now we have to decide, we're either going to make more than the average salary to be able to send fewer hours out the door or and to stay in the middle, or we're gonna have to double the hours instead of 40 hours a week, 80 hours a week, and send those hours out the door every week. And that's for two adult households. It's even rougher for one adult households. And so, given the increase of pressure Given the lack of resilience remaining in the household system, something had to give. And one of the things that had to give was what it meant to do active engagement in religious community. Also had to do with uh, social communities, had to do with civic communities, all kinds of things. But for our purposes, what it meant to be religiously engaged. It went from five times a month in 1970 to two times a month by the time we got into 2005. Now, two times a month is not really enough time to work the circle together. Two times a month is not really enough time to build a community. Two times a month is not enough time to work the practices, to work the circle, the communal, the contemplative, and the learning and the serving. So, church leaders now have two options. We can browbeat people, and tell them not to rest. Tell them not to stay home and not to recover from the 80 hours that they're sending out the door every week. Or we have to fundamentally rethink church. We have to rethink how we approach building spiritual community. Now, the problem is that's tough because we don't just have habit. We have 1,600, we have 1,700 years of habit. We've been doing it one way for a really long time and it's difficult to even imagine how we'll make those changes. Now, you've heard me say this before, and you're going to hear a lot more of it and some detail about it as we get into the new year, but we are working on that. We're trying to do it incrementally so we don't create too much of a shock to the system, but we are working on that. So here we are. A whole society, a religious institution, our jobs, our politics, our homes, our friendships, undergoing historically extraordinary change. And we don't know where this wild ride is going to take us, which makes it very tough to predict outcomes 
and then push for those outcomes, which is usually our go-to response, predict what's going to happen, and then push to make it happen. It makes it very difficult to trust that our preconceived expectations will be valid, will be useful, will even be helpful. We just can't see that far into the change that is before us. But it turns out, in the spiritual life, that's not a bad thing. (laughs) It's an uncomfortable thing, but it's not a bad thing. Because that level of uncertainty forces us to become better listeners. That kind of uncertainty forces us to become better discerners of insight and possibility that comes in the quiet spaces. Helps us become better at being listeners and learners looking for an unforeseen future that can emerge. We can prepare ourselves to be those kind of people. The people who are able to navigate encompassing change when that change shows up. Now the good news is we can do this. The good news, human beings have done it before, and if they can do it, we can do it. Also good news, our community has done a lot of this kind of stuff already. We've already gone through rethinking our religious framing narrative. We've already gone through rethinking our religious practices and what are the things that bring about life and uh, help us flourish and help us thrive. We can do this kind of change. We've done it before. So we just need to think about what kind of people do we need to be to be able to, to be ready for navigating the kind of change that is set before us. How do we prepare for ourselves and how do we prepare to help our friends and our families navigate life in this rapidly changing environment? Now, it may not be a surprise to you, but it begins inside. It begins inside of us. When the future is unknown, and by the way, the future is always unknown, but it's especially when it's as unpredictable as it is right now. When the future is unknown, the spiritual tradition has an interior posture that it says, this will help you, and is the posture of watchfulness. It is the posture of listening. It is the posture of paying attention. And I say paying attention in the sense of the two-step dance of the spiritual journey. We desire and then we listen, we watch, we pay attention. We come to our days, we come to our afflictive emotions with open hands. We come to our days, we come to the difficult moments, the anxious moments with open minds. We come letting go of predetermined expectations and predetermined outcomes and we become watchful we begin to wonder and we listen that pay attention part requires that we hard drive less and we watch and we listen more now here's the thing in times of great change the human mind is wired to go to anxiety So when there's a lot of change going on, we go to, by default, being anxious. And when we are anxious, we want to do something. You might have heard the twist on the old expression, don't just do something, stand there. (laughs) Which is the discernment posture. It says, don't just jump and do what your brain tells you automatically to do when you become anxious because there is so much change, but instead, breathe. 
and watch and discern. The posture of watchfulness tells us to suspend that hard driving version of ourselves. This is very difficult for me. I do hard driving. We suspend our push through barriers instincts. We ramrod less. We attack problems less. We push for closure less. And we listen more. We don't spend any less energy. We just spend it doing something different. Instead of pushing for this thing, we use that energy to listen for the interior voice. We make ourselves go to the places where we're most likely to catch the inner light, to find the inner wisdom. We spend that energy doubting more because doubt takes energy. We spend that time questioning more. We spend that energy wondering more. And we become suspicious of our fixed certainties because that's hard work. It's hard work to be suspicious of the givens with which we operate. We do the opposite of the typical anxiety response. Instead of defaulting to push harder, to be more certain, to uh, push for some uh, expected outcome, we wonder and we watch and we allow to emerge. Anxiety is the false self ego response. We're born believing that the world is not good. We we're born believing that God is not good. We're born believing that ultimacy is not good. We're born believing that we're not safe. And so we're born believing that we've got to make the world work and we've got to do it all on our own. And when change comes along and disrupts the system, we tend to dig even deeper into that faulty belief system, get even more attached to outcomes, get even more attached to preconceived, predetermined expectations of how things should go, how things should be. Also, the false self is driven by habits, habit thinking, habit emotional reactions, habit go-to responses, habit routines. And in times of great change, habit wants to do what we've always done. And doing what we've always done in times of great change is exactly the opposite of what it takes for new possibilities to emerge. It's exactly the opposite of what it takes to discern new potential. So to be the kind of people that we need to be in a season of as much change as we are going through, to live in this time that we were born, we must do the practices. By the way, did we mention club days coming? We got to do the practices because the practices slowly, slowly, slowly do what they were designed to do. They slowly begin to break down the ego self. They slowly begin to unclench the tight grip we have on the outcome that we expect, the thing that we believe, the thing that we hold to, the thing that we are ramrodding for. The practices help us come to our lives with open hands and open hearts. It lets go of the ram-rotting version of self. But you've been doing the practices, I've been doing the practices, and so we all know from personal experiences that practices take their own sweet time. <laughs> it's going to be a good long time before the practices do what they do. It's going to be a while before we find ourselves released from 
one layer and then another layer and then another layer and another layer of the falseness, of the anxiety, of the ego go-to reaction. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're continuing to work the circle, while we're continuing to do the practices, while we're continuing to talk about our souls with our spiritual friends and to do the meditation, all the things that we do, what can we do in the meantime? One of the things that we can do is be watchful for one particular thing. We can be watchful for the times when we start driving and striving for an outcome. We can watch for the times when we are pushing for the person that we love to act and behave and think and believe the way that we want them to act and behave and believe and think. We can watch for those times when we find ourselves pushing for behavior modification in that other person or in that job or in that boss. When we are striving and pushing and driving, we can see it, catch ourselves doing it, and when we do, do our best to learn how, pay attention to that term, learn how, to learn how to flip the script. Here are a couple of old-timey spiritual words to help us, the words that we don't actually gravitate to any longer because the way that we use these words now has connotations that are different from the original intent, kind of makes them actually sound like negative words, but they're not. The words are yield and surrender. Yield and surrender. Now, the way that we use language today, they sound to us, they feel to us like giving up. Yield and surrender sounds like giving up like conceding. They sound passive and they sound defeatist. And nobody wants that. The spiritual tradition doesn't even want that. But that's not what those old-timey words were going for. What they were going for was a very powerful spiritual tool, a very powerful spiritual posture. Those words were encouraging us to explore the deeper reality from which the daily reality emerges. Because to do that, you have to not be wrapped around the axle of those ramrod outcome instincts. You have to instead be watchful. You can't see the possibility that could emerge when you're too attached to the outcome you're pushing for. So we won't get to see those truer truths emerge. We won't get to see those more beautiful beauties emerge as long as we don't take this step back posture that those two words, yield and surrender, are trying to get us to. The words pointed us to a posture that helps us be watchful, that helps us be listeners and learners. And part of that is accepting what is. And to quit trying to deny this brain trick that we do, trying to deny what already is. Part of that yielding, surrender, is to acknowledge that the past is what the past is, and I do not have any control over that. I cannot change it. I can't push to make it any different. It is what it is. What I can do is I can accept the past. Even though I don't need to be bound by it, I can accept what was. I can also accept the present for what it is. Not what the ego self wants it to be, what I think it should be, how I am pushing for it to be, but to accept the present for what it is, including all the players who, in, who are involved in my present. And we can position ourselves to participate in an emerging, not yet seen, but looked for and discerned, deeper reality future. That's what those words were after. 
Today we might call it being present to the present moment. We might call it a posture of discerning. We quiet the preconceptions. We find the truth. We find the beauty. We find the, in the chaos what is good and noble. We find emerging possibilities that were not immediately obvious. We find the signal in amongst all the noise. So we get quiet and we become watchful and we learned to let go. And when anxiety shows up, it will, it does, we learn to breathe through it. We breathe through the anxiety. We begin to work together to help one another let go of our attachments to this outcome or to that outcome. We learn to help one another let go of the habits, the ego habits, the habit thoughts and the habit feelings and the habit reactions we become better at listening, listening within. We become better at watching. We become better at discerning. That's how we see new possibilities emerge. That's how we get to participate in the shaping of a future that is not yet seen. That's how we see courses of action that would have eluded us without being in that posture. We surrender instead of struggle. We discern instead of drive, we watch and we wait for the inner light moment to emerge. We let go of the striving, we let go of the driving. And when we do that, we enhance the possibility that we can walk into that uncertain future. And that's my prayer for us, that we become these kinds of people together that we support one another in this very counterintuitive way of being, that we work the circle together, that we forge the kinds of spiritual friendships with one another in which we can encourage one another to help one another listen and discern and watch and participate with the inner light future that is emerging. And so, indwelling divine, watchful listening and discerning, and able to step back from our predetermined, preconceived outcomes, may we be. Amen. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you